0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Soon, the State Department will honor U.S. companies doing business overseas, companies that demonstrate American values and international best practices. It's the latest round in the Award for Corporate Excellence program, now in its 22nd year. For more on the program, the Acting Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs, Peter Haas. Mr. Haas, good to have you on.
0: Hey, thanks to be here.
1: And just to clarify, this award is not for State Department contractors, but for companies at large that feel they have a chance and enter this program?
0: That's exactly right. This is for U.S. companies that are operating internationally and to recognize the great work that they do in promoting American values and American business values overseas.
1: Now, there are a great many companies that do that type of work, some big ones. Is it only big companies that get to be nominated and get this award, or can small companies also be part of it?
0: Absolutely that small companies can be part of it. And, in fact, this year we're encouraging nominations both for small and medium enterprises and for the larger corporations Because what we find is sometimes it's the smaller companies that do the initial innovations and test new ideas and new processes that then bigger companies are able to pick up later and do at a much larger scale. And so it's important to recognize both the smaller ones who are making a tremendous impact and also the big companies that build upon that impact.
1: And when you say operating overseas, that is to say not just simply exporting, but actually having business operations, manufacturing, for example, or sales and marketing, or what are some of the things that they actually do overseas?
0: Yeah, so that's exactly right. And what we find is that U.S. companies can often be our best, I guess, informal ambassadors overseas, and that in a lot of countries, there are a lot of people whose only contact with the United States is through either products or services offered by U.S. companies or their affiliates overseas. And what we've found is that, in general, U.S. companies, when they're operating overseas, generally pay a better wage, they have better labor standards, they respect environmental standards and have sustainable operations, they don't pay bribes, they do community support, they train their workers, and they pay attention to diversity and inclusion. And so whatever they're doing, whether it's manufacturing or distributing, or in some cases, sourcing local products to export to the United States, we find that they're tremendous ambassadors of the way American companies do business.
1: And over the years, are they tending to be mostly operating in Europe, in the EU, or do you find them in other parts of the world that might be a little bit tougher, Asia, Africa, so on?
0: Absolutely find them all over the world and sometimes in actually very difficult areas. In one case, we had a small company that was operating in Africa. And they were deliberately seeking to source cocoa and coffee from areas where there was conflict. And they were doing this to be able to raise income levels for the people who were living in those areas and under conflict situations so that they had a way to earn money and survive and take care of their families. And so some of these are operating in very, very difficult environments uh, in very difficult areas.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting subtext there because what you're discussing is a profit-making organization that in some ways does practices that you might associate with a nonprofit. So the implication there is that profit-making business and some of these greater societal goods are not incompatible.
0: That's exactly right. And there's a whole area of social entrepreneurship that seeks to do just that. They do well by doing good, I guess you would say. Uh, We have another example where a prior winner sourced cashews and deliberately chose female farmers to give them the opportunity to sell their product. And then in general, they found that female farmers then devoted more of the money and their proceeds into improving the health and education of their children, and therefore in the longer term, you know, raised the standard of living. But no, the company did it to make money initially, and they found that they could do good by doing well.
1: We're speaking with Peter Haas, the Acting Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs, and how do companies get nominated? You're in your 22nd year, so there sounds like you have to have a regular pipeline of nominees to be coming into the program.
0: Yes. Every year, we determine the categories, and they change over time to reflect different priorities, and then we notify all of our embassies and consulates around the world of the categories that we're doing and then ask them who are closer to the ground and watching U.S. companies to put forward nominations. And then once we receive the nominations, we have a group of senior level officials who look them over and match them to the categories and determine the winners.
1: Got it. And what do the winners get, by the way? (laughs) Do you give a trophy or you can't give them a contract or anything like that? Do they have something tangible to take back to the main office?
0: Most years, uh, last year being different, obviously, with COVID, but in general, the Secretary of State hosts the winners here at the Department of State for an award ceremony where we invite the CEOs from the winning companies to come and to present a little bit on what they're doing. They do get a trophy. It's a medal A, standing for ACE. And often what we find is that those trophies then go to the company overseas, and they very proudly display them there and trumpet their success. And our embassies overseas also trumpet the success of these companies.
1: And the nominees are in for this round, and what's the timeline for when they'll be announced, uh, the winners?
0: So we're planning to announce the winners in late fall. Generally, it's in the month of November. And so we still have a a few months where we'll do the evaluation of them and, and make the selections and the announcements and the preparations for the ceremony.
1: And in all of this, is there any opportunity for best practices in terms of overseas behavior and practices to be shared among companies or even mentored? I'm thinking of you know, some of the big companies that have operated overseas for decades, Ford Motor Company and so forth. Is there any way that small companies can learn from the experience of either other small companies that have been there a long time or some of the big companies that have been there?
0: Absolutely. What we do every year with the announcement, we also post on our website and do a fair amount of social media around not only who the companies are, but exactly what they did. And so it creates an inspiration for other companies who may be seeking to follow the same thing. So we do try to do that. Obviously, in the countries where the winners are, our embassies make a big deal out of it and do lots of publicity so that other companies operating there can see it. And there, I think I'd also like to add that it's not only the best practices being shared with other American companies. Often, U.S. companies in foreign markets the responsible business conduct that they employ is well above the standards of other companies that are operating in the same market. And so by highlighting what they do in terms of, say, promoting diversity, promoting environmental sustainability, we're able to highlight what U.S. companies do that then other companies in that market can then model and, and replicate
1: Because some countries, there is official corruption that goes on. And to be able to operate, sometimes you have to pay people that you wouldn't think of paying anywhere else, certainly not in the United States so far. We've never had that issue. But have you ever run across that challenge for companies operating overseas? Because there are American laws against that kind of thing. And yet, you've got to survive in some manner. How does that get resolved?
0: So certainly that can become an issue. And as you indicated, U.S. companies are prohibited by law from paying bribes when they're operating overseas. Uh, Well, actually prohibited in general from paying bribes. And their competition often isn't. And it's an important role that not only this award, but also the activities that we do at the State Department in pointing that out and in working with host countries to make sure they have the laws in place to stop uh, bribery and working through international organizations and agreements like the OECD Convention on Anti-Bribery to make sure that we're able to level the playing field. Because in general, you're not a better company because you pay more in bribes. You're a better company because you deliver better product.
1: Peter Haas is Acting Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: It's my pleasure. And we're looking forward this year to our main categories on excellence in climate innovation, excellence in health security, and excellence in economic inclusion. Thanks so much for having me.
1: We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
2: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration. And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me.
3: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation.
2: Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style?
3: uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward.
2: <laughs> Perfect.
3: that I have uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in america is and but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh to help close that divide so there have been so many defining moments uh, uh in my career i, I would tell you even uh after the murder of george floyd and my role at the u.s Cha- chamber of commerce uh to galvanize the business community uh inspired by that tragedy
2: It's fantastic. It's a great great answer many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um Who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them?
3: You know, I again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who uh who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So that the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, it's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King.
2: Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. um, What comes to mind there?
3: Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and and, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow.
2: And thank you very much for sharing that with us today.
3: But well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
2: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good
3: care